Welcome back to Mission 150. We are going to carry on talking about the story of the formidable Hannah Moore. In, we're delighted to have Dr. Bill Knott with us again, who was with us last week when we told the first part of the story of Hannah Moore about how she became a missionary and how she becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. She's an interesting figure in mid-19th century American evangelical Protestantism because as Bill described to us, her story runs through so many narratives of uh, 19th century evangelical Protestantism. Um, she campaigned in the United States for various social and religious reforms, and then she went as a missionary to West Africa. She became convicted of Seventh-day Adventism while she was a missionary in West Africa, and Unfortunately, she suffered ill health and having converted a number of people to Seventh-day Adventism in Africa, she decided to return. Um, we've got this remarkable woman. She's come back to the United States. What happened to her there? What comes next in the story of Hannah Moore? When she returns to Boston in June of 1866, she goes immediately an hour west coincidentally my hometown in South Lancaster, Massachusetts, to be with the Haskells, the same evangelist who first preached Seventh-day Adventism to her at, at a small schoolhouse five, years, five earlier. years earlier. She now has an invitation from the Haskells to come live with them in South Lancaster. Some years ago, while researching the, this story, I discovered that Hannah Moore is the first person recorded as baptized into what is known as the Village Church in South Lancaster, the oldest Adventist church there. She's the first person baptized into that on the, on the old records I discovered in the basement of the church. And of course, South Lancaster is one of the venerable institutions yes. and churches of Seventh-day Adventism, so the fact that she's the first member is, is quite striking. And is this when she came back? This is when she came back. She's baptized within a month of returning. She comes into so, Boston from Africa, yeah. she goes straight to South Lancaster to live with the Haskells, she's baptized within the month. So she, she, sorry, Sam, yeah, she okay. hadn't been baptized because when she first heard from Haskell, she was, she's felt this is the truth, but she was just about to go back to Africa. She goes there, it takes her the couple of years as you described, and so therefore when she, by the time she's fully convicted, there's nobody to baptize her. Precisely. So and as soon as she gets the opportunity, basically, she gets baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist. And it's intriguing that this is a part of her faith. I must, in fact, move through the appropriate forms of joining this new faith. She had come through a level, some kind of baptism as a child. Some might have said, well, that's that's sufficient. But she saw yes. her embrace of Adventism as so different that it required her baptism by immersion. Had she been baptized? As a child, she gives she, a reference to baptism. We don't know whether it was immersion, sprinkling, whatever was practiced in her But she wasn't a Baptist, was she? No, she's a Congregationalist. So almost certainly she hadn't been baptized by immersion. Not Probably not. It seems unlikely given the, what we can tell, but it's a very sketchy narrative from her childhood. This time, however, the story of her baptism is well known, and she writes letters to people while living with the Haskells for the next year. She writes to, in fact, we learn a lot of her story from a, 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 an odd piece that got saved in the Ellen G. White Estate Archives, hmm. namely a letter that when it was first discovered, and I was with Dr. Or Tim Poyer when he found it, he says, this shouldn't be here. It, by the rules of inclusion of what we catalog, why is this letter here? And we started studying it. She writes a letter to a cousin of hers who is a Congregationalist deacon in upstate New York. And in it, 
she gives a 5,500 word autobiography of herself. It hmm. became the map for all my research. Once wow. I found that in about 1992, I began seeing pieces of her story evolve. And what she does in that year, recovers her health, living with the Haskells, becomes fully grounded in her new faith, starts writing about it to relatives, not all of whom are accepting, but she really has her mind on going to where Adventism is headquartered. She wants to get to Battle Creek. In her mind, it is the place she ought to go next. The Lord is calling her to go to Battle Creek. She, the Haskells are very supportive of this, but it takes a while for her, she's a very poor individual, to get the finances together for the rail trip that takes almost a week. Right, because all her traveling has been paid for by mission boards and so forth. Or whatever she could possibly raise from friends. Right, so she's, she's, she's not a woman of independent means. Not or, even close, in I, fact. I don't want us to go any further before we point out that she brings the Adventist faith to many people before her own baptism. Yes. Um, and Good that point. is that is a <laughs> remarkable thing. It's like she's waiting to be baptized, but until that happens, I'm already going to help as many people as I can to see how beautiful this message is. Several of her relatives debate with her in letters back and forth about her newfound faith and they try to change her mind, but once Hannah made up her mind, she was going to stay at that. And so, but she's got her mind set on getting to Battle Creek. This is to her a goal because it will, it will sort of affirm everything she's been doing. She's been writing to the journal. She's, her story is known there. It's the largest collection of Seventh-day Adventists right. anywhere at this point. And she sees herself as joining that community. And we should point out for some of our listeners who may not be devotees of Adventist history, the Battle Creek was the center of Seventh-day Adventism for actually almost 50 years. Yes. Uh, Adventism doesn't start in Michigan, it starts in New England, but Adventists both emigrate to Michigan and have great success there. And so Battle Creek, this relatively small town in the state of Michigan, uh, becomes the center of Seventh-day Adventism. The church is formally organized there. Uh, by 1866, there's quite a, 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 it would be the largest single uh, population center of Seventh-day Adventism. So that's and why it's many, in her mind. How many? Just let's have an idea of scale. Are we talking about tens of thousands? No, no, we're talking about maybe about 1,500. Okay, so the epicenter of Adventism at this point has 1,500 people at, in at it. At a time when the church yeah. probably numbered approximately 5,000, at least a third of them were in the orbit of Battle Creek. And they had already that same summer launched the Western Health Reform Institute, the precursor of John Harvey Kellogg's Battle Creek Sanitarium. The first Adventist institution. And mm -hmm. Hannah is arriving there in the summer of 1867. So she makes it there. She gets there on this one week rail trip across the country. But before we get to that, what do we know about what, what Ellen White knew? Ellen White, of course, um, the Adventist prophet. Um, she, as you mentioned in last week's episode, she was reading Yes. She and her husband, James, we know, read with interest Hannah's letters from West Africa to the review that were published in the mid-1860s. Do we know anything about what Ellen White 
thought about Hannah More. Only later do we discover that as, Hannah, as Ellen White responds to Hannah's story and tells us why she has come, never having met Hannah, to value this woman as an enormous asset that God had brought to the church. Later, we discover from Ellen White's writing letters to the people in Battle Creek that she had been anticipating this moment when Hannah brings her formidable strengths and skills and aligns with the church's headquarters in Battle Creek. Ellen White clearly thought this was a gift from God to the, the emerging mission consciousness of the church to have an experienced missionary, international missionary, yes. speaker of multiple languages, a person prodigious in biblical memory. This is a figure Ellen White prized. In fact, she uses that language and thus it sharpens her disappointment when Hannah doesn't have a good experience in Battle Creek. So, Cliffhanger right there. <laughs> <laughs> Why doesn't Ellen White meet her? Ellen White is looking forward to her coming to Battle Creek, and yet from what you say, it sounds like they never actually met. So why, what happens? Ellen and James White are in Greenville, Michigan, about 60 miles away, where James is recovering from one of his early sequence of strokes. James, who is a, the, has been the founder of the Review and Herald, one of the early presidents of the church, begins to experience at about age 47, a sequence of life-threatening strokes. Ellen White gets him taken to a recovery spot, we would say, about 60 miles away. That 60 miles, however, is not an hour's drive it was several days journey. There were no roads or rail lines connecting right. Battle Creek and Greenville. Today, you drive it in an hour and think nothing of it. Was that the point? So that That's James why. would not make it back and keep working? She deliberately Yes, because really the, the strokes almost certainly come because James is a workaholic. Oh, he, he's, he is an entrepreneur. He's a man who's restless in his sort of being. He's constantly trying to fix and improve things. When he has these debilitating strokes, Ellen White removes him to a farm in Greenville to help him recover and effectively takes him out of the orbit of leadership. Right, so that he won't, that he's forced to rest, basically. And Hannah arrives at one of these moments when the Whites aren't in Battle Creek. And this is where, if you saw the story as a tragedy, this is where it begins to turn and, and go to negative because the, re the resident leadership in Battle Creek men we know well, Uriah Smith, resident editor of the Review, John Loughborough, leader of, of their emerging ministries area, they all meet Hannah when she arrives. Oh, this person who's been writing to us from Africa, so what are you doing? And she says, well, I've come to Battle Creek and I hope to find a job teaching here, I'd like to live here. So Hannah, as we heard in last week's episode, had been a teacher for many years. Some 30 years. So she's expecting or hoping that she can teach Seventh-day Adventist children. Well, in fact, at knowing how fragile the emerging public school system of the time was, it wasn't at all unlikely to go to community, announce that you were a teacher, and get up a school. People would say, experienced teacher, our kids need education. So it was a pretty reasonable assumption that she could find employment in her known profession among people who 
had read her letters and knew her story. It's worth pointing out that at this point, Adventists don't have any schools. No. For many Adventists who associate the church with Adventist education, this is before the first schools get founded. But actually, it's not before the first Adventists were teaching, Seventh-day Adventists were teaching Seventh-day Adventist children because precisely of what you describe. At various points, an Adventist teacher announced that he or she was going to teach and Seventh-day Adventists sent their children. But none of these schools actually last and none of them get embraced by the denomination as, as official Adventist schools. But nevertheless, the hope that she could come to where there is a center of Adventist population and find work teaching is not an unreasonable one. In fact, she had done this kind of thing throughout her home state. Go to a place, your credentials become known, people say, I want my children there, and that's how the school system operates. It isn't built in the same structure as we're used to in the United States or in most par uh, parts of the Western world today. When did we have our first school? Was it Bell? What was his name? Goodloe Harper Bell, yes. Well, actually, the part that intersects with Hannah's story happens in Battle Creek. She says, I would like to get employment as a teacher. And they say, we have no need for a teacher in, of Adventist children in this community. And she's looking around and can see to the contrary. But it was actually not a statement about their need for a teacher. It was about their probably we would say discomfort with this strong, formidable personality who's arrived, they don't quite know what to do with her. Right. But just to come back to Sam's point, 1874 is when the first Adventist, when the church's first educational institution starts. As I say, there had been schools episodically before that. Um, Isn't that the same year that we decide to St. Andrews? It is, as it happens. This so, is the, so, hold on a minute, I see a thread. So the 150th, an, thread. The, the 150th anniversary that we're commemorating in this podcast, is it's also the 150th anniversary of Adventist education. That's another podcast coming. But here we have <laughs> yes. somebody who arrives at, uh, at uh, Bato Creek. Who, and it's 1867? 1867. 1867. She is now, could be considered a pioneer in missions and a pioneer in education, yes. if only they give her a chance. Right. <laughs> I've, I've gone so far as to say, and I can document this, she is probably the best educated Adventist woman of her era. Wow. We can document her post high school educational experiences in Massachusetts and Connecticut. I've actually seen her grade reports and curriculum where she, where she attended in Connecticut. What did she, where, where did she study and what? She, st she studied at, at, in Southern uh, Massachusetts at a school that still exists, which is why I was able to find the archives. Um, she did what would be considered a general high school education and then went on near Springfield, Massachusetts to do advanced skills, we would call it junior college or something like that today, community college level, she's, that's when she ultimately gets her yes letter to go to Oklahoma. Right, and, and let's just point out to our listeners that for a woman in that period, even to do what we might call junior college level is quite unusual. It's extremely unusual. In fact, given her, given her both proclivity for, for learning, her skills, prodigious skills, memorization skills, as well as her ability to build argument and to be persuasive. She is clearly a formidable figure and probably, just guessing, a little too formidable for the brethren who are in Battle Creek. But that's a problem that is persistent all the time. You know, it, 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 whenever you get an organization, it's easy for people who come in who agree with everything. Yes. Right, it's a lot easier. You're agreeable, you're working within the system, you're nice and so on. And then you find somebody who says no. 
uh, there is a better way of doing this. And, and they are formidable, but they're also extremely annoying, <laughs> Be, right? Because well, they are pointing the things that, that you need to fix sometimes and that we need to move forward. And by, and, and by 1866, it probably was plain that they needed a school. And it's, it's probably uh, annoying to have somebody who you don't really know, who you've only re you know, heard about through correspondence coming in and insisting to you know you need to be doing this. Is it possible that this is a constant thread up to this day? Because just go to any conference. There is always a pastor that is more annoying than the other pastors. <laughs> Usually that was, was that me. you? <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't think there is one, it's probably because it's you. <laughs> so this is something that our pioneers had to deal with, um, but everything was in development in Adventism. Our theology was in development. Our structure was in development. Everything was in development. And in many ways, it would be fair to describe the brethren in Battle Creek in that era as individuals who were cautiously administering in the absence of James White, who's the natural leader. The leader, of the yes. And yes. he's sidelined with a stroke, and no one really wants to make a decision. Some of them have written about this subsequently after Hannah left town, in a sense, repenting of the way they responded. They did not, they were not proactive. They basically, when she asked, is there work of any kind, not just teaching? No, we don't really have any work to be done. Uh, well, you, could you help me find a place to stay? Well, she stayed for a week with one family, and then she stayed for some days at the Western Health Reform Institute, but they informed her that no more than three days free, thank you. And so at the end of a two-week time in Battle Creek where she's looking everywhere to find connection and a place to stay and a job and believing that she's come to the place where she will be accepted. She's known from her letters. She ultimately concludes, there's no place for me in Battle Creek. So this goes beyond just the difficulty of working with a strong personality. This is incredibly inhospitable. Ellen White suggests in a letter she writes later that the reasons why the good folks of Battle Creek looked askance at Hannah Moore had to do with her dress wasn't in style, she was an older individual, she was a person in ill health, she might become a burden if anyone took care of her. Ellen White speculates in her letters that these were the reasons why Hannah was so disappointed in her experience trying to find connections in Battle Creek. But so, you know, go ahead. Let, let me throw something else in here. Let me flip the coin. James White was a strong leader. Yeah. He was the kind of leader that made bold decisions. Yeah. So he was, he, there was also a level of disagreeableness in him. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So what happens when you have a strong leader in that is so strong that in his absence, there are no other leaders that want to take responsibility and do something. Isn't that an, also a, a, something that we see today in many ways and that they've experienced there? It, 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 we would now look back and say that though there were people who should have taken charge, they didn't in the moment. And ultimately they basically say, may the Lord be with you as you go somewhere else. And Hannah figures this out and realizes all of the hopes she had invested for some years now. Yes. Getting to Battle Creek, living there, teaching there, being in worship with the people of her own faith are not going to be met. It's a moment of extreme disappointment in her life. Now, it's, uh, it's also, it's, it's an appalling outcome. You know, one has to, to say, it's, it's, a, it's, a, 
it's not just um, a shortfall in leadership vision, it's a shortfall in Christian charity and, and the ways we're supposed to behave. In fact, Ellen White later writes of this incident, Jesus visited you in the person of Hannah Moore and you turned him away. Wow. She was also rather disagreeable sometimes. <laughs> Frankly, some of the most passionate letters I have ever read penned by Ellen White are related to this story and its outcomes. Ellen White had so prized this individual she had never met, seen her as God's gift to the infant church, as someone who would lead us into mission endeavor with experience and understanding and connections, and ultimately the community that is supposed to represent these charitable values of Adventism says, no thank you, we don't want you. So we're foreshadowing the tragedy now, but you know, having discussed what happens, what happens next? What does Hannah do next? And how does her... J just a second, just, babe, before sorry, we sir. move on, I have to point this out. This still happens. Yes. And it still happens tragically because our social media channels of the World Church, yeah. we're providing online pastoral care for people. Yes. Yes. Our Hope Channel, uh, we have 950 television channels that are Adventists all over the world. We present Adventism in its best light possible. The radio stations everywhere. But then we invite them to visit right. our Adventist churches. And I could publish volumes of people that went to our Adventist churches hoping to have the same relationship they've had online. We care for them, we prayed for them, yeah. we've been part of their lives for months and now they come to an Adventist church and no one talks to them. So living out the values of the kingdom in this particular way was a struggle in Battle Creek when God's gift came to them, yeah. but it's also a struggle in many of our churches today as God has been working in people's lives for a long time. Some of them have said, I will go in their own lives. Yeah. Some may have helped others to see and fall in love with Jesus before they arrive. But when they do arrive, it is very difficult for us sometimes to allow that person to be welcomed because they don't fit whatever mold we've got. This is not a unique problem. We're still struggling with it. 150 plus years later, yes. Yeah. But so what, what does happen next? Hannah ultimately concludes, since there's not going to be a place for her or space for her in Battle Creek, that she will accept a long-standing invitation from a mission family she had worked with in West Africa, 30 miles up inland from the coast. They had said, anytime, Aunt Hannah, because she was like an aunt to the children, anytime you need to come somewhere, come where we are. If you think of the map of Michigan as like a mitten or a glove, yes. you imagine the little finger the peninsula, the Leelanau Peninsula, which is in the northwest of the state. They are living way up at the tip of the Leelanau Peninsula. And Hannah says to herself, I've left Connecticut. I can't go back there. Well, I'm closer to them. But closer is a relative term. Relative there term. are no rail lines that get her there. So she has to go from Battle Creek down through present-day St. Joseph near present-day Andrews University down through northern Indiana to Chicago, and from Chicago, the rail up to Milwaukee. There she has to get on a packet boat and sail across Lake Michigan Goodness. <laughs> to a little island off the coast of the Leelanau Peninsula and then take a boat in. How does she know what she has to do? There's no internet or anything. There's no Googling but, the path. But remember, this woman has floated down the Mississippi and gone up the Red River. She's traveled to Africa on several occasions. She's actually one of the most experienced travelers in terms of total miles and logged. And fearless too. And how fearless, old, indomitable. How I mean, frankly, where she may have had 
I suppose, some trepidation going out as a 31-year-old woman. By the time she reaches the age of 57, there is no fear left in her. She'll go anywhere. And she does all of this unaccompanied. There's no one with her. She, we, we know that she goes across the lake. They meet her when she, her boat comes in. They, I don't know how they learn, perhaps a letter, letter. Mm-hmm. but uh, they meet her and the family is ecstatic to see this woman who had almost been part of the family. The children are still young and they remember their years with her in Africa. So she quickly finds in this Congregationalist missionary family now settled in Michigan, the family that she didn't have Ugh. with fellow believers the in Battle Creek. The gift somewhere else. And so she settles in with them. Meanwhile, she's writing to the Whites, and they are writing to her. So with, Ellen White is corresponding with her. By, this episode happens in July. Ellen White learns that Hannah has been turned away in Battle Creek and starts writing to her, trying to connect in September of 1867 at a camp meeting in Wright, Michigan. Hannah is now North. Which is, by the way, the first Adventist camp camp meeting. meeting. Ellen and James are thinking, we're going to Wright, Michigan. She is now 150 miles north of that. If she can get down there, we'll meet her there and she will come live with us. Their plan is to bring Hannah into their family, knowing that she's been turned away by the larger Adventist family in Battle Creek. So these letters are are also pastoral. This is Ellen White uh, reaching out from a pastoral perspective, too. James does most of the actual communicating with Hannah, but they're trying to arrange a connection. Mm -hmm. The letters don't arrive to Hannah in time. She doesn't make, she's not able to make the trip down to the camp meeting. So then they continue to write saying, well, we've got to get this connection made before the harbors freeze because she can she can't get out by any other means than boat uh, the fall gets later the autumn grits gets later the harbors begin to freeze and soon Hannah writes to the whites saying I guess I'll be here for the winter I have been able to get the money together she needed about what would be the equivalent of what she called it, $50. I can't, I don't know what the sum would translate today. I suspect multiples of that to get from where she was. And she was trying to save what little money she could. The family she's living with are like her impoverished former missionaries in Africa. There's no one with extra cash. The preacher, the former missionary who had worked with her, so respected her skills. He says, now, Hannah, you know, I am a circuit rider preacher and I have multiple churches I serve here in this peninsula, I'd like you to preach for me on some Sunday mornings, but you can't talk about that Sabbath of yours. (laughs) Hannah writes that she agreed she would not use any time in the pulpit to talk about the Sabbath, but she writes to the whites, but I have convinced his wife to keep the Sabbath. (laughs) And she is celebrating this small victory. But again, she's in a loving home, people caring for her. The, The winter like, but but the, despite that, the story doesn't have a happy ending. Oh, no. In fact, if you have ever been, as I have been, to northern Michigan in January and February and the Leelanau Peninsula, I remember keenly the morning that was 27 below Fahrenheit and my car would barely start. It's a severe place to be in the winter and you need all of the heat you can get and the good fortune you can get to get through a winter. By late winter, Hannah is writing letters to the whites. She says, the place I'm living, they're so lovely and so kind, but I don't want to complain, but I'm living in an attic room through which passes the stovepipe 
for the stove and smoke is leaking out and she's beginning to cough a great deal and have lung irritation. She feels she's growing sicker, doesn't want to complain. They've been hospitable, doesn't know what to do, but she's beginning to feel that she might not survive the winter. It's growing that serious. By late February, she is in, she probably we would guess from reading the medical records of her death ultimately, probably has what we would call congestive heart failure, fluid backing up, and ultimately dies uh, in a little dispensary in that town. Uh, The home the family lived in is still there. I've been in it. I have seen the room Mm. very likely that was Hannah's there. It's one of the oldest homes in the community and still identified as having been this pastor's home. The story there takes additional strange turns. Ellen White doesn't hear of her death for some weeks. She's still hoping that when spring comes, they will connect again and Hannah will come to live with them and go back to Battle Creek. When Ellen White becomes aware that Hannah has died, she writes a blistering letter. The second of such she's written to the church in Battle Creek. First time when she knew they turned Hannah away. And secondly, when Hannah dies, she descends with all of her prophetic force on the church for its grievous sin. This is where the line, Jesus visited you in the person of Hannah Moore and you turned him away. She is furious that this amazing woman, this prodigy whom God has brought to the church is now gone. Well, the pastor who knows of Hannah's connections to Adventists sends a letter to the Review and Herald saying, Sister Hannah Moore, whom you know, former missionary of Africa, has died. We have temporarily interred her in a plot in a cemetery near Carp Lake. And we are sure that her friends will want to come and disinter her and bring her and bury her in Battle Creek, which never happened. Wow. That is the last time any Adventist saw Hannah Moore's grave well. My wife and I were the first ones to discover her gravestone in 1988 on one on that terribly cold <laughs> day in Michigan, having matched up the preacher's description of where the cemetery was to a, a new map. We were walking across the snow and I hear my wife sing out, Bill, here it is. And this woman who's now become very large in my imagination, we find her headstone and discover that they've interred her in a family plot, not the missionary family's plot, another plot, a deacon in his church has said, well, put her here now. Right. As a temporary. Temporary, because they were so sure the Adventist friends were going to rebury her in Battle Creek. To this day, Hannah, the woman who never married, the formidable figure, separates a husband and a wife in the family plot. <laughs> One of the it's a, meta- it's a metaphor. <laughs> and and over the years as I gave the location to various Adventist historians and others have now got it with GPS markers and people can find it much more easily than we did. And her story has become known People now go to those letters that appear in second volume of testimonies. They read Ellen White's passionate prose, her anger at how Hannah is treated because exactly of her ability to help the church move at a critical moment, fully eight years, six years, before we really got 
our mission program launched yes. with Andrews, Ellen White thought it could have happened much sooner using the skills of this very talented right. woman God had brought to us. So this is a tragic story. It's a personal tragedy for Hannah who dies in this, this way, but it's also a tragedy for the, the church that even if we hadn't got the mission movement started earlier, and there, there are probably, we, we've done a podcast about this already, there's probably reasons that it wasn't gonna happen until it did, but what we could have had in 1874, instead of somebody who's never been a missionary right. and who has to work out how to be a missionary even as he's working out how to start a mission in Europe, we could have had somebody who'd done it for many years, who was as multilingual perhaps as Andrews. We had this, we had this person who could have been there and we don't because we turn her away and, and it, it's, Maybe her health was poor in any case, but it's hard not to think that if she'd been living in Battle Creek that winter. If she had gotten to meet the whites, undoubtedly she, would have survived. She would have still been alive. And so it's a, it's a tragedy for her, but it's a tragedy for the Adventist church as well. Ellen White, I, hate, Ellen, I hate the story, Bill. Well, it, 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 <laughs> I hate how this ends. This well, is, but there, there, are, there are, in the providence of God, redeeming features that come at the end. Because this is the first time I'm hearing of this story, it, so I'm, you, it, I'm, it, I'm pretty it, upset right it, now. It shakes <laughs> you when you think about what could have been and what we, what we gave up on. By, five, uh, by, by, self, by, by selfishness, self-centeredness, an ability, an inability to see what was in front of their eyes and an inability to act in a Christian way. I mean, goodness. Ellen White did not forget this story. In fact, five months after Andrews has been sent to Europe in 1874, Ellen White laments in a letter, oh, if only we had Sister Moore to tell us what to do now, she would know. She would have been the, the, the consultant of the church, if not herself a missionary. She would have said, oh, connect here. Here's a network of people I know. Here's how you can start in a place where you aren't planted. And Ellen White is lamenting this, even as, she as they're sending Andrews out, recognizing we could have been in a much stronger position with the gifts and skills of this remarkable woman. I mentioned that the story has a redeeming outcome. Now, before that, I want to make yeah. a comment about what you just said. Yeah. Doesn't it strike you as remarkable that the person who's received multiple visions from God and has this unique communication with God, let's say, is lamenting because the church refused to accept a person God had sent. Yes. Do you see what I mean? She's I lamenting the lack of knowledge the church has, yes. which yeah. it could have had if, if Hannah was part of it. Yeah. And it seems that she is, that her, her she's upset because the person God had sent is we rejected. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it a very humble thing to do? Do you see, do you see what I'm getting at? Yes. It's like, it, it would be easy for her to say, well, if God is going to reveal his will to anyone, it would be me. Yes. But no, she doesn't have that spirit. And she recognizes that God is God and she's not. And God will reveal himself to whoever he wants. Perhaps we can go even a little further and say, here's Ellen White, who is herself a very strong personality um, and has faced uh, already, you know, some 
certainly some disbelief and even censure from people who are supposed to be believers in who are Seventh-day Adventists, much less people outside the church. And I think surely she must have a degree of sympathy for this woman who is also a strong person and, and is a woman, mm-hmm. a woman working in a man's world who who dares to be have strong opinions. Well, there fact, must be a degree of, 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 of feeling that, you know, that, that they are sisters in a sense more than being sisters in Christ. I'm glad you mentioned that because there is a, a letter written by Hannah about her sense of call, not just to mission, but to preaching. She has wrestled with this, she says, her entire life. Finally, in the 1850s, she has an occasion as a now a, uh, almost a 45-year-old woman, she has an occasion at a prayer meeting she's asked to preach. She talks about having struggled for years knowing that God wanted her to do that, but her culture would not allow it. Her Congregationalist culture, even the Finneyite culture. One day the Baptists asked her to preach. She said she had been wrestling with what she calls the monster within, the sense of God's call that she could not fulfill. They give her the window and she feels this sense of freedom and release and that she's doing what God always wanted her to do. I read that letter and I've read it many times and I have seen in it, here is a woman who is experiencing a struggle remarkably the way like Ellen White experienced with the brethren of her era. She is running against the tide that says women are not gifted for these things. Women are not called. And yet here's Hannah who's having a parallel story in her own spiritual biography unknown to Ellen White at the time. I would, I'm assuming that there probably is more correspondence between them than we've ever discovered. But what we know of, there's certainly a great sisterly connection that makes Ellen White say, this is a prize, we need her. Um, Ellen White is so angry about this, she writes this blistering letter in what is now recorded in the second volume of Testimonies to the Battle Creek believers. They gather for their first meeting in May 1868 first post-winter meeting, and the first item of business is to form a society to take care of widows, orphans, and the indigent. Wow. Specifically because of Ellen White's letter about Hannah Moore. That society, a benevolent fund to take care of, is today's Adventist Development and Relief Agency. And Adventist Community Services. It is the immediate cause of what is today a world-embracing humanitarian agency, all out of a story of tragedy and rejection. You have to tell the end of this one to understand how God's providence overrides human mistakes, to see that the founding thread of our humanitarian work is a story we had to learn by the mistakes we made, but we learned from them. Thank you so much, Bill, for being with us on two episodes of the Mission 150 podcast and for sharing with us the extraordinary yet tragic story of Hannah Moore. Um, It seems her story is partly one about roads not taken and is a reminder that the, the things that we don't do can be important in church history as well as the things that we do choose to do. And that's an important lesson, I think, for us to learn. Thank you for being with us on the Mission 150 podcast. Please join us again next week as we continue to tell the story of the Adventist Church's 150 years of mission.